Today we continue our series entitled Seven. We've been looking the last several weeks at the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation found in chapters two and three. Jesus ends each letter with let the one who has ears hear, an invitation to us that even though the letters were written to specific churches and specific situations, that we here in 2015 have an opportunity to learn from what Jesus said to those churches. We've looked at the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis. And if you've missed any of those, I would invite you to listen on our website or you can listen also on our mobile app. Today we are at letter number six and Jesus writes to the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia means love of brother, literally. Uh, brotherly love is what we call it when you talk about the Philadelphia, the one that's in Pennsylvania. People call it the city of brotherly love. Um, those people obviously have never been to the airport there, but still, that's what, the, uh, that's, what, that's what it's called. The city of Philadelphia, the one in Asia Minor, the one in modern-day Turkey, which is what we're talking about today, uh, was located on a plateau uh, area. It was a f- kind of a frontier area that opened into a plateau. It was a gateway uh, for trade. It was located at the intersection of some important trade routes. It was also on a, an important postal route for the Romans. And in fact, they had given it the nickname, the gateway to the east. And the economy there in Philadelphia was primarily agricultural. They grew grapes. But there was an earthquake that happened there in AD 17, and it destroyed the city of of Sardis, but it also did considerable damage in Philadelphia. And the problem in Philadelphia, they had a lot of aftershocks because the... Philadelphia was located on a fault line. In fact, there were so many aftershocks, the people became afraid to live in the city. So most of the people from Philadelphia lived outside of the city because they were afraid of buildings falling on top of them. And that's important, by the way, for something we'll talk about later. So just keep the earthquake kind of in the back of your mind. But Jesus writes to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, beginning verse 7. He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write... These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. He, uh, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Philadelphia was a small church. It was a church that had no prestige. It had no wealth. In fact, it was a church that really hadn't grown that much. And so it's easy for us to think of it as an insignificant church, but Jesus doesn't at all. Jesus has no words of condemnation for this church, none at all. Even though they were small, even though they were not growing, even though we would consider them insignificant. What he does is he comes to them and he introduces himself as the one who is holy and true. By saying that he is holy, he's equating himself with God, which of course he is. Uh, Jesus Christ is, is holy in his character, in his words. He's holy in his actions. He's holy in his purpose. But he also introduces himself as the one who is true. He is the one who is genuine. In this particular time in history, in this particular part of the world, there were a lot of idols. There were a lot of man-made gods that people worshipped. And so what Jesus is saying is not only am I holy, but also I am true. I'm the genuine article. I am not just the one who claims to be God. I am God. I am the only God. So he makes the claim that he is authentic, that he is genuine, that he is not manufactured like the other gods. And then he says he holds the keys of David. It's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of ownership. The house of David is a typical designation for the kingdom of God. 
And so Jesus is saying that I hold the keys of power in the kingdom of God. I hold the keys of entry in the kingdom of God. It belongs to me. There's an ownership that he's talking about here. Actually, there's a, a, this verse is, is a quote of Isaiah 22, 22, which basically says, He will open doors that no one is able to shut, and he will close doors that no one is able to open. But Christ holds absolute power over entrance into the kingdom of God. And it is he who admits, and it is he who excludes at his pleasure. Verse 8 says this, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church may have been small. He says here they have little strength. And they may have had little impact on the city. But Jesus commends them for having obeyed his word and having stayed true and having not denied them. And he says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. There are all sorts of ways to look at this open door. You could say, well, Philadelphia was located in a very strategic place geographically. And so before them was this open door for them to go out and to do ministry and to do mission work. Or, or some have suggested that this open door that he's talking about relates to God's word, that he had opened his word to them, that, that his word was available, that they could learn not just of him and from him, but they could learn to be like him. Some have even said that this refers to the synagogue because the Jews had excluded, had excommunicated, basically, the Jewish Christians from the synagogue. They locked them out. And so what Jesus might be saying here is, look, they may have physically closed you out of the synagogue, but I have opened a whole different door to you. I have opened a door to eternal life that nobody can shut. Verse 9, he says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, we mentioned the conflict that existed between the Christians and the Jews. In his letter to the church in Smyrna, he also, Jesus uses the term, the synagogue of Satan. The idea that these were people who claimed to be Jews, but they were just claiming to be Jews in name only. That the true believers, the ones who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, were the ones who were the true church. And he's saying, look, these people are liars. They're just serving Satan, is what he's saying to them. They've shut the Christians out, but God will vindicate his faithful people is the message for them. And in verse 10, he says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, these believers had endured patiently, but, but Jesus tells them here that this is going to become a great time of testing. Now, there are three ways to look at this verse. Some people claim that this verse points to a rapture, a pre-tribulation rapture, that the great time of tribulation is coming, but the people who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture believe that the church will be raptured or removed from the world before the tribulation, that the church will not have to go through that. That's one way it's taught. Another way of teaching this is to say that this just means that the church in general throughout all history will go through times of trouble and tribulation. And then some say, well, there will be a period of tribulation, a specific period, 
And the church will go through it, but Jesus will see that they have strength to go through it. So there are three very different ways of looking at this. But what I want to do is I want to point to a word that he uses. He says, I will protect. The word that is used for protect is the same word that's used in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus himself prayed in John 17. He said, I'm not asking that you take them, talking about his disciples, out of the world, but he's asked that, they will keep, he will, that God will keep them safe from the evil one. The whole point here, I think, that regardless of, of which theological part of this you subscribe to, whether you believe in a, in a rapture, this pre-tribulation rapture, or whether you believe there's none at all, no tribulation at all, or whether you believe that there's going to be a tribulation and the world has gone through it, regardless of what you believe in that, in that particular area, here's the point, that regardless of which of those is true, that God is going to protect those who believe in him. They are going to be protected from his wrath and from his judgment. That they are guaranteed a place in heaven, those who are faithful to him. And yes, we realize Jesus is coming back. But the point that we need to remember in addition to that is that regardless of what we go through as his people, he's going to protect us. Verse 11 says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, for the churches in Ephesus and Pergamum and Sardis, if Jesus had said to them, I'm coming soon, that would have given them cause to worry. Because Jesus had told them to repent of what they were doing, and if they didn't, he was going to come and, and do various things. But for the church in Philadelphia, when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, that's not a threat to them at all. That's not a threat because they have been living like he wants them to live. It would be a promise to them that, that in spite of your trouble, I, I'm coming back. It would have been a good thing for them. He uses the word soon, which can mean quickly, but it can also mean without warning. And he says to them to hold on to what they have, to stay obedient, to stay faithful, to refuse to deny Christ. Hold on to that, Jesus says to them, because I'll come back without warning. And in verse 12, he says, the one who is victorious, remember the earthquake? He says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. The believers who are victorious will become pillars. Pillars stand for permanence. Pillars stand for stability. These earthquakes that they were having and these aftershocks, a lot of times when the buildings were destroyed, the only thing that was remaining were, were the pillars of these particular buildings. And remember I talked about the people had moved outside of the city because they were afraid of the tremors. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to make you pillars. I'm going to make you stable. I'm going to make you the only thing left standing. When all of this is gone, you are going to be a stable fixture in a place that is full of destruction. There's stability there. But he also says to them, look, you're going to live in my city. Now, they were living outside the city, so the, the imagery is great. They have no room to fear. They, Jesus is going to bring them into his city. And not only is he going to bring them in, but he's going to make them pillars in his city. 
And then he says he's going to give them, uh, they're going to be inscribed with Christ's new name. Here's the point of this. The idea that there's a threefold promise, basically that believers belong to God, and there's stability in that relationship. And then having that relationship is not just for here, but it's for heaven. That their relationship in eternity is with him. And they're going to spend it with Christ. Everything is going to be pure and new and secure. And that's what he's saying to them. He's, look, all of this destruction that you see around you, uh, one of these days, everything, because you're faithful and a believer in me, is going to be new. And that gives them hope. And then verse 13, the way he ends every letter, he says, whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, there's a lot to hear. And I hope as as we've kind of gone through these uh, verses, verse by verse, that there have been things that maybe have have jumped out or at least uh, got your attention, or things that that relate maybe to your life or life of the church or or things that are going on. But what I want to do today as we accept Jesus' invitation to, to have ears and hear what he's saying, I really want to focus on this idea of the open door. The open door. You see, I I think it's a fallacy for us to sit around waiting for Jesus to open doors. Because one of the key points here is Jesus has already opened the door of opportunity. What he says here, he doesn't say to the the people in Philadelphia, he doesn't say, now y'all sit over there and wait. After a while, I'm going to open the door. He doesn't say that to them at all. What Jesus says to them, he says, look, I have, I have, I already have opened a door of opportunity. Now, Jesus opens new doors of opportunity all the time. But what is he saying to us is there's one open right now. There's always an open door. And a lot of churches will sit around and a lot of Christians will sit around waiting for God to open a door when there's one right there open for him. Now, people will say, well, it takes discernment. You know, we don't want to get too hasty. We have to discern which door is really open that, that God has put there. I think that's true if, if you perceive way down the road that God might have an open door for you. And, and the closer you get to that, you, you really want to know if, if that's when you get there, is going to be a door that God has opened. So yeah, that takes some discernment. But let me tell you, God's got some doors open for you and for the church right now that are huge open doors. They're flashing neon signs on the side. They're arrows that point and say, here, here, here. Those are open now. There are obvious doors that God has placed open for us as a church, and there are obvious doors that God has placed open for you in your own personal faith. And it takes courage for us to go through them. Well, what kind of doors are they? Well, without naming specific ones, let me just give you three areas. It may be a door of opportunity for you to share your faith. Some kind of mission work. It may be for the church to reach out more in the community. It may be for you to reach out more in your area of influence. It may even mean that God's calling you to do some work outside of here, to go on some mission work or some mission trip somewhere. There are all sorts of opportunities. God opens doors for the church and for individuals to do great work, to serve and to do work. But also, it could mean, as we said before, opening the door of Scripture to understanding His Word. We have the Bible. It's an open door for us to know about God, to know about ourselves, to learn, to see his will for our lives. 
but it's also open for us to enter into a closer relationship with God, not just to learn facts, but to grow in a relationship with him, and out of that relationship, we go out and we serve him. It's also an, a reminder to us that God has opened the door to everyone. As a church, as individuals, we don't have to sit around and go, well, I wonder who God's opened the door for. He's opened it for everybody. Now, everybody may not come and accept the gift that he offers, but the door of salvation is open to everyone. And so it's not up to us to sit around and decide who needs to hear the message and who doesn't. Everybody needs to hear the message of salvation because Jesus has opened the door to everybody. You don't have to choose just one. He's opened all three of those doors in all three of those areas Opportunities to work and to serve him. Opportunities to learn and to grow in your relationship with him. Opportunities to go out and, and help others to find that open door into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're all there. Another point is that the open door, I think, is Jesus' vision for the church. The open door represents Jesus' vision for the church. It, it says here that he has the keys to open doors as he wishes. He can open what he wants to open. Uh, not only does he open doors, he opens doors that no one else can open. So then the question is, why would he open a door if he didn't have some kind of vision for what should happen because of that open door? God doesn't just go around opening doors. He opens them for a reason. He has a vision for what he wants to happen via that open door. So it's up to us to fulfill that. Now, our vision as a church is simple. It's two words. It's move beyond. Move beyond. That's our vision as a church. And it fits perfectly here. As it relates to open doors as a church, we need to move beyond this side of the door to the other side of the door. We need to move beyond just seeing if that door is open for us to going through that door. We need to move beyond just looking around for doors to going through the doors that God has opened pretty wide. For us to go through. It's his, it's his vision for what he wants to accomplish. That's why God opens those doors. But something else I think this scripture points to is the idea that, that Jesus wants us to stop focusing on obstacles. Now, remember the open door is his vision. So if Jesus opens the door, he's going to empower and he's going to protect those who are faithful to accomplish the mission, or the vision for why he opened the door. Now, related to the size of the church, this was a small church in Philadelphia. And, and you think, well, if it's a small church, it doesn't have a lot of power. But Jesus said, look, I'm going to give you the power. He said, you don't have it on your own. But Jesus is the one who's going to supply the power. And it's the same with us. It doesn't matter how big or how little we are. That's not the point. If, they, if there's a vision that Jesus has for us, then he, he's going to give us what we need to go and, and, and accomplish that. So, so forget about numbers, and, and, and that relates to numbers of people. That relates when it comes to, to money and, and all of those things. Because, yes, we need to be wise stewards, and, and we also need to count the cost, as Jesus says. But the underlying thing here is the idea that, that if, if it's Jesus' vision for his people, then he's going to empower and equip his people with what they need. Now, when presented with an open door, that's our first response usually, is, 
why we can't do something. When, when we're presented with something, we immediately go to a whole list of why we can't or why we shouldn't do something. So I want to propose something else for us. Uh, I want to propose that, that when there's an open door for you personally as a Christian or whether there's an open door for the church, that the first thing we do is start writing down reasons that we should do that thing. Why we should walk through that open door. Why we should take on that ministry. Why we should take on that particular task that God has for us. Start writing down reasons that we should. Don't start with a manpower assessment. Don't start with a financial assessment. Make a list of why you should or why we should as a church do something. All right, here's a hypothetical. And as long as we're going to throw out hypotheticals, let's throw out a big hypothetical, okay? We're not going to start with just some little small hypothetical. We're going to start with a big one. Let's say that God has opened a door for us, Clarksburg Baptist Church, to plant, to start, to found a new church at Charles Point. Let's say God opened the door for us to do that. How would we begin to assess that opportunity? I can tell you how we'd begin to assess it. We'd say, well, oh, I don't know. The property's awfully expensive out there, you know. Uh, the property's awfully expensive. And, and if we're just planting a church, that means we're still going to have this building in downtown to maintain. Plus, we're going to have, oh, my goodness, it's going to cost way too much. Uh, and, man, we, we, you know, we can't get enough volunteers to, to do ministry here. How in the world would we get enough volunteers if we went out and planted a church? And if we did, wouldn't we take our best volunteers from this church and, and take them out there? Oh, my, I, I don't know if we could do that or not. And, and can we really support financially uh, two different campuses? And, you know, our, our, is our church really big enough uh, to do something like that? Maybe we should grow more before we, we look at something like that. Now, that's how we usually approach things. We start off with the negative stuff. We start off with the reasons we can't do something. We start off with the reasons why we shouldn't follow God through this open door. But, but let's keep this hypothetical thing going. Let's say God did open a door, and there was an opportunity for us to plant a church at, at Charles Point. Here's how we should start that list. Very first thing on the list should be Charles Point is an incredibly, <laughs> rapidly growing area in this county. There is no established church that I know of at Charles Point. It's a prime spot because of its location. Now, you see the difference? One is the list of why we should do this. Now, certainly, you're going to do all sorts of evaluations, and you're going to pray, and you're going to go, and you're going to do all sorts of things, and that's fine. But start with why you should. Don't start out with a negative about why you shouldn't. Whether it's something as grand as my little hypothetical there, or whether it's something smaller. Start out, when there's an open door, start out by making a list of the reasons you should walk through that open door. And then Jesus decides when our work is done, not us. He says to the church in, in Philadelphia that he's coming soon, but he doesn't tell them that so that they can go just sit around and wait. Well, Jesus is coming back, so 
Why should I fool with this? I'll just sit and wait for Jesus to come back. But Jesus encourages them to be obedient and faithful to the end, not to, not to sit back and just wait. Even though they don't know what day it is, well, that's all the more reason for them to keep working till he comes back. But for us, sometimes I think we get to a point in our faith, we get to a point in our life, and a lot of times it's related to age, where, where we think we've done our part. You know, I raised my family, I've done my part. I served my country, I've done my part. I taught Sunday school once, I've done my part. I know you're laughing because you've said it, haven't you? <laughs> Here's the thing. Guess how many people Jesus in this room, guess how many people in this room Jesus is done with? None of you. You know why? You're still breathing. Good, you've heard this sermon before, haven't you? Yeah, I've said this a lot. When God's done with you on this earth, you stop breathing. And you go home to be with him. As long as you're on this earth, there is something for you to do. And Jesus, not us, determines when we've done our part, when we are done. Now, I know, I can't do stuff that I did when I was 20. As you age, as you age, your abilities change. But that doesn't mean God's done with you. That just means that he might be opening some more doors for you to do some new work for him. So let God decide when you're done. Don't decide for yourself. Keep working. Keep working. I don't, I don't care what, what it is. God will open a door for you, regardless of what you perceive as some kind of physical handicap or maybe age limitations or whatever. God is always going to open a door. It's exciting for me to think about God opening doors. But what we have to realize is this. If you re remember the scripture that we read. It said that what God opens, only he can open, or what Jesus opens, only he can open, and what he shuts, only he can shut. It's a fallacy for us to think that we can close a door that God has opened. Because only he can close that door. And what happens is, just because if, if there's a door open for us, and we don't have the courage to walk through that door, we didn't close that door. We don't have the power to do that. It's still open. But here's the thing. If we don't have the courage to walk through it, then God will find somebody else who does. And that's so important for you personally as a Christian. It's so important for the church. Is God opens doors all the time. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of what he's doing. You know, I don't want to miss an opportunity. Not because we're in competition with other churches. But if he's opened a door for me or opened a door for you as the, as the church, I want to be a part of that. I want to know the excitement of being a part of God opening new doors for us and to do new things. So, remember, there's a door open right now. You don't have to wait. You can walk through it. God will open some new doors down the road. You want to be aware of them.
but have the courage and the strength to walk through it when he opens them because he's the one that's going to give you the courage and the strength and the resources. Let's pray.